This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode was sponsored by our patrons, Bella, Jessica Smith, Jan Elise Cannon, Jamie Lang, Jill Harrigan, Maria Sanchez, Ellen Gross, Valerie Jacobson, Heather McKinnon, Chantal Oliver, Monique Harris-Pixado, and Caitlin McTaggart. Thank you so much for being our patrons. We couldn't do it without you. You can become a patron for as little as a buck a month to help make more episodes happen. Merry Christmas, Olivia. Merry Christmas. Or, rather, Joyeux Noël, Olivia. Oh. This holiday season, I'm taking us to France. (gasps) Versailles, to be exact. Have you been to Versailles? I have never been to France. I've tried three times, and every time something goes wrong. Wow. Apparently, the universe does not want me to go to France. Oh, yeah. So because you've tried so many times, that must be why, in my mind, you've been there. Yeah, you've, you've helped me plan I've a whole you trip. Plan. <laughs> but wow. flight delays and world pandemics mean we never get there. Well, I shall take you there today. Ah. We're going to Versailles in the year 1900. Ooh. With a writer named Mary Stuart Boyd. Ah, that's not a French name. No, it isn't. (laughs) She's kind of a global citizen. At the time that she wrote this piece we're going to hear, she was living in London in St. John's Wood by way of Glasgow. She married an artist, and the two of them were at the hub of high society creative circles. Mm. They were friends with the likes of... Well, let's do this. Let's do this. Name some Edwardian writers for me. Oh. 1900 to 1915. Uh, well, my BFF, Arthur Conan Doyle. Okay, yes. They were friends with him. Ah! Uh, Henry James. Yes, he too. D.H. Lawrence. Yes, Uh, was their friend. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Kipling. Yes. Oh, E.M. Forster. Yes. What? That's also a friend of theirs. Wow. And, uh, and I these... want to go to there. I know. <laughs> and Mary Stuart Boyd was a collector of first edition books, so she had all of their first editions signed by them. Wow. But what what is notable to me is that all these famous writers we've named are men. Yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. And she is a writer in that circle. Wow. She wrote eight novels, three books of travel writing. Aww. She traveled the world and wrote so richly about it she had such a keen observational eye and like a delightful sense of humor 
Um, yeah, turn I, of the century travel writing is my jam. How have well, I never heard of her? See? Yep. Well, now, happily, there's a new edition of the um, Oxford Companion to Edwardian Literature. Mm. And it revives hundreds of writers from this time period. Yay! And she's in it. Yay! Hooray! Now I know what I want for Christmas. And she's such a global citizen. After she lives for decades in London, she and her husband moved to New Zealand, mm. where she lived out the rest of her life. And she was the very first president of the wonderfully named League of New Zealand Pen Women. Founded in 1925 to encourage women to develop skills and interests outside the home. Wow. How lovely is that? Man, she's my favorite. I know. I know I hadn't heard of her. Yeah. Um, and what a life. She traveled, her, her travel books, one is from her adventures in Mallorca. <laughs> then she traveled to Australia and New Zealand in 1900 and wrote Our Stolen Summer. And last but not least, a Versailles Christmas Tide, which is what we will hear from today. Hooray! She went there to spend a long holiday season, not by choice, but because her only child was there at boarding school, at a Catholic school in Versailles, and he got scarlet fever. Aww. So since he couldn't come home, he was in quarantine. Aww. She and her husband went there to live in a hotel near the school, and they would walk to the school every day. Oh. It paints a scene I would never expect. Life there in 1900 is far from the hubbub of the palace and the tourist hordes. Mm. She does go to the palace and it's pretty awesome, but we get to see Versailles through a completely different lens. Mm. And I will tell you that the boy survives oh. and it all ends with warmth and gratitude. And so we can venture safely into this tale. Thank goodness. No sad <laughs> Christmas. And today it is read for us by the wonderful Sophie from Not for the Dinner Table podcast. Yay! Where she and David discuss all things not appropriate for the dinner table. I love that podcast and I love them. And whether you've been to Versailles or not, I hope listeners you all enjoy this vivid journey back through time. To northern France before both world wars, before mobs of tourists, and as we shall see, even before globalization sort of universalized Christmas and New Year rituals. Mm. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Versailles Christmas Tide by Mary Stuart Boyd. No project could have been less foreseen than was ours of wintering in France, though it must be confessed that for several months our thoughts had constantly strayed across the Channel. For the boy who was at school at Versailles, the time of separation had dragged tardily past until one foggy December morning we awoke to the glad consciousness that the very evening the boy would be with us again. The boy is an ordinary snub-nosed, shock-haired urchin of 13, with no special claim to distinction save being an only child. 
Yet without his cheerful presence, our home seemed empty and dull. Any attempts at merrymaking failed to restore its life. Now all was agog for his return. The house was in its most festive trim, Christmas presents were hidden securely away, there was rejoicing downstairs as well as up. Even the kitchen cat sported a ribbon and had especially energetic purr ready. Into the midst of our happy preparations, the bad news fell with bomb-like suddenness. The messenger who brought the telegram whistled shrilly and shuffled a breakdown on the doorstep while he waited to hear if there was an answer. He's ill. He can't come. Scarlet fever. One of us said in an odd flat voice. Scarlet fever at school? When can we go to him? When's there a boat? Cried the other. There was no question of expediency. The boy lay sick in a foreign land, so we went to him. It was full noon when the news came and nightfall saw us dashing through the murk of the wild mid-December night towards Dover Pier. It was a wild night, wet with a rising northwest gale. Tarpaulined porters swung themselves onto the carriage steps as we drew up at Dover Pier and warned us not to leave the train. Owing to the storm, the Calais boat would be an hour late in getting alongside. The tumult of waters left us scatheless. We seemed to be awake all night, staring with wide unseeing eyes out into darkness. The chill before dawn found us blinkingly sleepy at a blue-blized porter who curtly announced that we were in France. Grey dawn was breaking as we were jolting over a stony street of Versailles to our hotel. Pausing only to remove the dust of travel, we set off to visit our son. Walking with timorous haste along the grand old avenue where the school was situated, a little casement window to the left of the wide entrance door showed a red cross. We looked at it silently, wondering. At the top of a little flight of worn stone steps was the door of the school hospital. Under the ivy-twined trellis stood a sweet-faced sister waiting to welcome us. Bienvenue, welcome. Il est là-bas. We reached the sick chamber and saw the boy. Raising his fever-flushed face from the pillows, the boy eagerly stretched out his burning hands. I heard your voices, his hoarse voice murmured contentedly, and I knew you couldn't be ghosts. Poor child, in the semi-darkness of the lonely night hours, phantom voices had haunted him. We of the morning were real. The good sister buzzed a mild frenzy of Oh, il faut pas toucher. But all unheeding, we clasped the hot hands and crooned over him. After the dreary months of separation, love overruled wisdom. Mere prudence was not strong enough to keep us apart. 
A young compatriot, also a victim of the disease, occupied another bed, but for the first moments we were oblivious of his presence. It was with sore hearts the prescribed sink minutes ended. We descended the little outside stair. Still, we had seen the boy, and though we could not nurse him, we were not forbidden to visit him, so we were thankful too. Our hotel was distinctively French and immensely comfortable. It had gleaned and still retained the creature comforts of a century or two. Thus it combined the luxuries of hot air radiators and electric light with the enhancement of open wood fires. Viewed externally, the building presented that airy aspect almost universal in Versailles architecture. It was white tinted with many windows shuttered and heavily lace draped within. A wide entrance led to the inner courtyard, where orange trees in green tubs and trellis work suggested that it would be a pleasant summer lounge. From the moment of our entrance, we felt at home. I think the logs that purred and crackled on the hearth had much to do with its air of welcome. There is a sense of companionship about a wood fire. Like a delicate child, the very care it demands nurtures your affection. These were pleasant moments when ascending from the chill outer air, we drew our chairs to the hearth and reveled in the beauty of the leaping and darting flames. It was only in the salle manger that we saw other occupants of the hotel and when we learned that several had lived unpension for periods varying from five to seven years, we felt mere creatures of a moment and wholly unworthy of regard. At 11, after our morning visit to the school hospital, we breakfasted in the salle a light, bright room whose chandeliers starred with electric lights. The first thing that struck us as peculiar was that every table save ours was laid for a single person. With half a bottle of wine, red or white, placed ready in accordance with the known preference of the expected guest. After the early days of keen anxiety regarding our invalid had passed, we began to study our fellow guests individually and to note their idiosyncrasies. Sitting at our allotted table during the progress of leisurely meals, we used to watch as one after another entered and hanging coat and hat upon certain pegs sat silently down in his accustomed place with an unvarying air of calm deliberation. Then the swift-footed garçon would skim over the polished boards to the newcomer and would wait pencil in hand until the guest selected five plates from the comprehensive list. The most picturesque man of the company had a white moustache of surprising length. On cold days he appeared enveloped in a fur coat, a garment of shaggy brown which made his appearance suggest the hero in a pantomime rendering of Beauty and the Beast. But in our hotel there was no beauty, unless indeed it were a vet. 
an effect could hardly be termed beautiful. Every night, precisely at a quarter past seven, the door would open. An effect, her face expressing disgust with the world and all things therefore, would enter. Yvette was blonde with neat little features, a pale complexion and tiny hands that were always ringless. And her millinery was in sympathy with her feelings. Her hat had all the fringe of disconsolate feathers whose melancholy plumage emphasised the downwards curve of her mouth. To see Yvette enter from the darkness and seating herself at solitary table droop over her plate as though there was nothing in Versailles worth sitting upright for, was to view ennui personified. Yvette invariably drank white wine, and the food rarely pleased her. She would cast a contemptuous look over the menu, then turn wearily away. But after one or two despondent glances, Yvette ordered quite a comprehensive little dinner which she ate with the same air of utter disdain. A more attractive personage was a typical old officer of the Legion of Honour, who used to enter, walk with great dignity to his table, eat sparingly of one or two dishes, drink a glass of his vin ordinaire and retire. Sometimes he was accompanied by a tiny spaniel, which occupied a chair beside him. Nothing could have impressed us so forcibly as did the frigid silence that characterised the company. Many of them had fed there daily for years. And when, in the presence of the silent company, we were tempted to exchange remarks, we found ourselves doing it in hushed voices as though we were in church. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. The first dread days when the boy seemed scarcely to realise our presence were swiftly followed by placid hours when he lay and smiled in blissful content, craving nothing. But this state was quickly ousted by a period of discontent when the hunger fiend reigned supreme in the little room. The nurse epitomised the converse of her charges, and indeed she was right, for from morning till night the prisoner's solitary topic of conversation was food. During the first ten days their diet consisted solely of boiled milk. 
milk doesn't count, when shall we be allowed real food, was the constant cry, and their relief was abounding when the doctor promised to withdraw his prohibition on Christmas Day. But then the prisoners discovered that their only choice would lay between vermicelli and tapioca. Tapioca? Imagine tapioca for Christmas dinner, the invalids exclaimed with disgust. To witness the French nuns seeking to ally the hunger of these vivacious schoolboy aliens was to picture a wren trying to fill the other gaping beaks of two young cuckoos whom an adverse fate had dropped into her nest. Of a former visit to Versailles, we had retained little more than the usual tourist recollection of a hurried run through a palace of fatiguing magnificence, a confusing peep at the Trianons, an unsatisfactory meal at one of the open-air cafes. But our winter residence in the quaint old town revealed to us the existence of a life all its own. Versailles is not ancient, it is old, completely old. Since the fall of the Second Empire, it has stood still. Most of the clocks have run down, as though they realised the futility of trying to keep pace with the rest of the world. The future merges into the present, and the present fades into the past, and still the clocks of Versailles point to the same long eventide. On three mornings a week, the presence of the open-air market rues Versailles from her dormouse-like slumber and galvanises her into a state of activity that lasts for several hours. Long before dawn, the roads leading towards are busy with all manner of vehicles, from the great wagon drawn by four white horses driven tandem to the ramshackle donkey cart conveying half a score of cabbages, a heap of dandelion grubbed from the meadows, and the owner. By daybreak, the market square under the leafless trees presents a lively scene. There are stalls, sacred to poultry, to butter, eggs and cheese, but the vegetable kingdom predominates. Flanked by bulwarks of greens and bundles of leeks of incredible whiteness and thickness of stem, sit the saleswomen, their heads swathed in gay cotton kerchiefs and the ground before them tentingly spread with little heaps of corn salad, of chicory and of yellow endive, placed in the adorable contrast to the scarlet carrot, blood-red beetroot, pink fawn onions and glorious orange-hued pumpkins, of miniature Brussels sprites and of pink or yellow potatoes. The clock points to 11, the sun is high now, the vendors awaken to the consciousness of hunger and Madame of the Pomme Frites stall is fully occupied in draining the crisp golden shreds from the boiling fat and handing them over, well sprinkled with salt and pepper. 
customers who devour them smoking hot, direct from their paper cornucopias. Long before the first gloom of the early midwinter dusk, all has been cleared away. The worthy country folk, their pockets heavy with sous, are well on their journey homewards, and only a litter of cabbage leaves and leek tops remain as evidence of their lively market of the morning. As the days wore by, the embargo placed upon our desires to cater for the invalids was gradually lifted and little things such as sponge biscuits and pears crept in to vary the monotony of the milk diet. Then the point of interest for the Red Cross prisoners at least in our morning visits lay in the unveiling of the eatables we had brought. The unknown ever lurked in our packages, the sugar sticks, chocolate, fruit, little cakes or what we had chanced to bring were carefully examined, criticised and promptly devoured. It was not a noble specimen of a Christmas tree. Looked at with cold and imaginative eyes, it might have been considered lopsided Undersized it undoubtedly was, yet a pathetic familiarity aroused our sympathy as no rare horticultural trophy ever could. We brought it from old Grandmère Gormard. Some Christmas fairy must have whispered to Grandmère to grub up the tiny tree to include it in the stock she was taking into Versailles on market morning. For there it was, its roots stuck securely into a big pot. The sight of the starveling little fir tree reminded us that in the school hospital lay two sick boys. If we could not give them the longed for home Christmas tree, we could at least give them a Christmas tree. The sight of foreign customers for Grandmère Gourmard speedily collected a small group of interested spectators. Christmas trees seemed not to be greatly in demand in Versailles and many were whispered communings as to what Langlais proposed doing with the tree after they bought it. A knot of children relinquished their tantalising occupation of hanging round the pan of charcoal over whose glow chestnuts were crackling appetisingly. Will you put toys on it? A curious boy asked suddenly. Yes, it's for a sick boy, a boy who has a fever. Have you ever had an arbre de Noël? was his conclusive reply, the tone thereof suggesting that was a felicity quite beyond the range of possibility. The tree secured, there began the comparatively difficult work of finding the customary ornaments of glass and glitter to deck it. A fruitless search had left us almost in despair when late on Monday afternoon we joyed to discover miniature candles of red, yellow and blue on the open-air stall in front of a toy store. Laden with treasure, we hurried back to the hotel and began the work of decoration in preparation for the morning. During its short stay in our room at the hotel, 
the erstwhile despised little tree met with adulation that must have warmed the heart within its rough stem. When nothing more than three coloured glass globes, a gilded walnut and a gorgeous hummingbird with wings and tails of spun glass had been suspended by narrow ribbons from its branches, Rosine, the pretty Swiss chambermaid, chancing to enter the room with letters, was struck with admiration and pronounced it and Carl, the porter, bringing in a fresh pannier of logs. Putting down his burden, threw up his hands in amazement and declared, It was late on Christmas Eve before our task was ended. The tree, which had entered the room in all humility, passed out transmogrified beyond knowledge. Rosine, duster in hand, leant over the banisters of the upper landing to watch its descent. Carl saw it coming and flew to open the outer door for its better egress. Even the stout old driver of the red-wheeled cab creaked cumbersomely round on his box to look upon its beauties. The two Red Cross prisoners, who were thinking wistfully of forbidden joys of home, had no suspicion of our intention and we wished to surprise them. So burdened with our treasure, we slipped in quietly. At the door of the hospital, the good sister received us, a flush of pleasure glorifying her tranquil face. Then the patients were ordered to shut their eyes to reopen them upon visions splendid of the Arbre de Noël. Perhaps it was the contrast to the meagre background of the tiny school hospital room with its two white beds and bare walls, but placed in full view on the centre table, the tree was almost imposing. A donor who is handicapped by the knowledge that the gifts he selected must within a few weeks be destroyed by fire is rarely lavish in his outlay. Yet our presence wrapped in white paper and tied with blue ribbons when arranged round the flower pot made a wonderful show. There were mounted boars who when you pressed the ball at the end of the air tube galloped in a wobbly uncertain fashion. The invalids had good fun later trying racing them and the boy professed to find that his boar gained accelerated speed when he whispered bobs to him. There were tales of adventures and flasks of eau de cologne and smart virile pocketbooks. Suspended among the purely ornamental trinkets of the tree hung tiny net bags of crystallised violets and many large chocolates rolled up in silver paper. The boys openly rejoiced when they caught sight of the sweets. For the sister, there was a miniature gold consecrated medal. The elder Red Cross Knight was a tall, good-looking lad of 16. The age when a boy wears painfully high collars, shaves surreptitiously and unnecessarily with his penknife, talks to his juniors about the tobacco he smokes in a week and cherishes an undying passion for a maiden older than himself. He was ever an interesting study 
though I do not think I really loved him until he confided his affairs of the heart and entrusted me with writing of his love letters. I know that behind my back he invariably referred to me as Ma. The warm glow of firelight filled the room, scintillating in the glittering facades of the baubles on the tree and from their pillows two pale-faced boys who, despite their lengthening limbs, were yet happy children at heart, watched eager eyes while their sweet-faced sister, with reverential care, lit the candles that surrounded the holy babe. of 1900 had been unusually mild and the new century opened cloudless and bright. New Year's Day was a quiet one. A dozen miles distance, Paris was welcoming the advent of the new century in a burst of feverish excitement, but despite temptations, we remained in drowsy Versailles and spent several hours in the little room where two pallid Red Cross knights who were celebrating the occasion by sitting up for the first time waited expectant of our coming as their one link with the outside world. It was with a sincere thrill of pity that at Dejeuner we glanced around the salle manger and found all the ogums filled their accustomed solitary places, eating with their unfailing air of irrespective absorption. Nobody had cared enough for these lonely old men to ask them to fill a corner at their tables, even on New Year's Day. To judge by their regular attendance at the hotel meals, these men, all of whom, as shown by their wearing the red ribbon of the Legion of Honour, had little hospitality offered them. Most probably they offered as little, for throughout our stay, the bearing of the hotel guests suggested absolute ignorance of one another's existence. None ever had a friend to share his breakfast or dinner. Day after day, month after month, year after year, these men had fed together, yet we never saw them betray even the most courteous interest in one another. The day of the year would have passed without anything to distinguish it except that the afternoon brought us a charming discovery. We had a boy guest with us at luncheon. A lonely boy left at school when his few compatriots had gone home on holiday. The day was bright and balmy. And while strolling in the park, we stumbled by accident upon the little village of counterfeit rusticity wherein Marie Antoinette loved to play at country life. 
Following a squirrel that sported among the trees, we had strayed from the beaten track, when through the leafless branches we caught sight of roofs and houses and found ourselves by the side of a miniature lake, round whose margins were grouped the daintest rural cottages that monarchs could desire or court architects design. It is doubtful whether 10 out of every 100 tourists even notice the Queen's little village. So to chance upon it in the sunset glow of the winter evening seemed to carry us back to the time when the storm cloud of the revolution was yet no larger than a man's hand. At first sight there was no sign of decay about the long deserted hamlet. The windows were closed but had it been early morning, one could easily have imagined villagers were asleep behind the shuttered casements and that soon the Queen would come out to breathe the sweet morning air and to inhale perfume of the climbing roses on the balcony overlooking the lake. A heavy snowfall now tempered the inclement air and turned the leafless park into a fairy vision. The sun glinted warmly on the frozen waters of the gilded fountains and sparkled the crisp snow. Approaching nearer, we saw where the roof thatch had decayed, where the insidious fingers of time had crumbled stone walls. The sunset glamour had faded to the premature dusk of midwinter. A chilly wind arising moaned through the naked trees. The shadow of the guillotine seemed to brood oppressively over the scene, and shuddering we hastened away. There came a night when returned to the Red Cross prisoners for the last time we sat together around the little tree watching the sister light candles that illuminated the holy babe. On the morrow the prisoners carefully disinfected and bearing the order of the release would be set free. It clouded our gladness to know that before the patient's sister stretched out another period of isolation just that day, another pupil had developed scarlet fever and only awaited our boy's departure to occupy the little room. Hearing that this fresh prisoner lay under sentence of durance vile, we suggested that all the toys might be left for him instead of being sent away to burn. 
The boy's bright face dulled. If it had been anybody else, but mother, I don't think you know that he is one of the French boys we dislike. It was he who always shouted Abbas les Anglais in the playground. The reflection that for weary weeks, this obnoxious boy would be the only inmate of their sick room overcame his empathetic feelings and he softened so far as to indict a polite little French note offering his late enemy his sympathy and formally bequeathing to him his toys, including the Arbre de Noël with all its decorations, except the little waxen Jesus nestling in the manger of yellow corn. The sister had already declared her intention of preserving that among her treasure. Dear nameless sister, she had been an angel of mercy to us in a troublesome time. And though our earthly paths may never again cross, our hearts will ever hold her memory sacred. The time that had opened so gloomily had passed and now that it was over, we could look back upon many happy hours spent within the dingy prison walls. And our thoughts were in unison for the boy, abruptly breaking the silence, said, And after all, it hasn't been such a bad time. Do you know, I really think I've rather enjoyed it. A Versailles Christmas Tide by Mary Stuart Boyd was read for us by Sophie Greenhalgh Cook and recorded by David Wolseley Wood. Music was recorded by Mark Nelson, Cooper Cannell, Zachariah Hickman, Aaron Kenny, The Mind Orchestra, Twin Musicom, Harry Fishpie, Esther Abrami, Nate Blaze, Kevin McLeod, and Daniel Foster Smith. You can find links to Mary Stuart Boyd's book, all of her husband's illustrations for the book, and all the music on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Wishing you a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thanks for donating. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today we discuss technical diagramming with systems architect Maya. Let's go. First question. You've spent 10 hours slogging over a sequence diagram that should have taken five. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board. And if I'm being honest, Miro would probably cut that time down by half. You know, with its AI tools and ready-to-go templates. Next, your diagrams become so bulky, it's more complex than the solar system. But all it takes is a few clicks and... It's Miro. I've used those technical shape packs way too many times. And stuff is just digestible on its infinite online canvas. Now, the final question. Everyone's brought in. But you have to make all these tasks all the way over in Jira. But wait, it's done. Is it... Miro. Easy with its two-way Jira sync. Easy to plot dependencies. Everyone always knows what's up. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people creating technical diagrams without workflow glitches. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.